Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for being here today. Well, let's talk about productivity. We all want to be productive, get more done, accomplish more. But it's kind of ironic that the more we think about those things, the more anxious we sometimes get, and the less productive we end up being. So if we want to be productive, we probably should focus on being calm, but that's easier said than done. Well, my guest today has done a lot of research about being calm and how that can ultimately benefit us, including in the workplace. His name is Chris Bailey, and he's the author of a book called How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. I talked to Chris about the issues around finding calm in what are indeed very anxious times and how this relates to the workplace. And he had some really practical suggestions, some of which are easy to implement and some of which I think some of us would find quite challenging. It was a really fascinating conversation. Please stay with us to hear it. Well, can calming your mind boost your productivity at work? And if it can, how do we do that? To talk about that, I'm joined by Chris Bailey. He's the author of the book, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. Hi, Chris. Linda, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for doing this today. It's good to be here. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about how to calm your mind, but tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this field where you're, you're giving advice on this? Yeah, it, it, it's not something I expected to to write. If I look at this book, How to Calm Your Mind, uh, my history is with the subject of productivity. And so I, I've always been about becoming more intentional, becoming more productive, achieving more of what we intend to do in the first place. And that's something I've been speaking about, writing about, researching, and chatting with the greats, the gurus about for over a decade now. And it got to the point where, you know, I was going around doing a lot of talks on this topic. And unfortunately, on one of the talks, uh, I, I got up on stage, but I noticed that when I was up there, that beads of sweat were starting to form on the back of my neck. I started st- stammering, stumbling over my words, my heart rate spiked, and I realized that I was having an anxiety attack on stage in front of about 100 people. And I, I thought I was doing a good job of investing in self-care leading up to this point. I was meditating. I was working out. I was going to the spa with my wife, which was more enjoyable uh, than, than I thought it would be. And still, this anxiety had the space to metastasize inside of my own life. And so seeing this phenomenon uh, got me really curious to, to take the same approach that I like to take with productivity advice, filtering out the stuff that works from the stuff that doesn't. But with calm, with anxiety, with burnout, with a lot of the things that I was going through at the time that, that I think a lot of us are going through right now. And this book is the ultimate result of that. And, you know, fortunately, I made it through the rest of that talk on autopilot mode, but it was really the, the wake up call that, that led me to think about the place productivity deserves to have in my life, in all of our lives, as well as how we can find more of a a, a deliberate balance between productivity and other factors of our life that make things great. 
Well, you know, I know you talk about calm and anxiety in a lot of different arenas in the book, but I'm interested in the workplace because at the moment, I don't think there's a lot of calm there. Uh, no. There's a lot of anxiety and everything else. You know, how would you describe the typical workplace? And does it help people be calm at all? Well, it, it really depends on, first of all, uh, you'll probably hear that I'm on a different mic now. I realized I the wrong mic checked in, in the Zoom window. So hopefully this sounds more velvety, more, more smooth, more, more, uh, more whatever. But it, it's, it's fascinating how there's different factors of our work that can lead us towards uh, becoming more productive or being less productive, especially as it relates to burnout. And so burnout is the ultimate manifestation of chronic stress that we face in our work. And there's actually certain factors of our work that make us more likely to burn out uh, and less engaged. And so that's the fascinating thing, first of all, is burnout is this idea where we feel cynical, we feel unproductive, we feel uh, just completely depleted and exhausted at all, all at the same time, those, those three factors. And this comes because certain factors of our work are out of whack. And so burnout is on one side of the spectrum. Anxiety is on the other side of the spectrum. So instead of feeling exhausted, cynical, unproductive, we feel uh, fired up. We feel productive as if we're making a difference. Uh, we feel as though there's a light behind what we're doing. And as I break down in the book, there's six factors uh, of our work that lead us to this, this state of burnout or engagement, depending on how much of them we experience. Uh, workload is one critical factor. So the more that our workload eclipses our capacity to get it all done, the more stress we experience from work, and the more likely we are to reach a state of burnout. Um, in, in addition to burnout or, or workload, lack of control is another factor. So the more control we feel uh, over our work in terms of when, where, and how we do something, uh, the more engaged we become. Community is another factor that I, I don't think we weight heavily enough. Uh, when we feel close with the people that we work alongside, nothing fires up us up more than that. Nothing makes us more motivated than having a good friend at the place that we work with. And uh, conversely, nothing leads to more, more stress at work than having negative relationships with the colleagues that we have. Well, let's, 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 let's spend a moment on that because right now we're talking a lot about remote work and people are isolated. Is this, in your view, leading to more anxiety and you know, uh, negative outcomes or is it something that can be handled? That's a really uh, interesting question because you know we need, it's kind of a, a balance between control uh, and community. So control is another one of those factors, one way and how we work on something. And community is yet another. So we community makes us more motivated, again, than pretty much any other factor at our work. And I really do think that remote work uh, detracts from the sense of community that we have, where when we connect with each other only in the digital world, uh, there's less, less richness, there's less depth to that. There's uh, there isn't really any replacement to looking somebody in the eyes and having a meaningful or productive conversation with them. So I, I really do think so. 
Okay, but that's something. I mean, I have spoken to many people about this topic on this podcast and elsewhere. There are organizations that are better at this than others, right? Mm. That go out of their way to try and foster connection and do things. And I don't mean stupid things like ritual quilts uh, that bring people together. But, you know, it's a struggle. I don't think this is the culture that we've ever thought about creating. You know, you mentioned also that um, the quest for productivity is an addiction, right? And that's something Mm -hmm. that's probably encouraged by organizations. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So we we so often kind of adapt the default or adopt the default values of the culture that we find ourselves in, Uh, whether that's a work culture, whether that's a a broader societal culture as well, of course. And when, when you look at the default values that the culture around us has, it's accomplishment. It's uh, striving for more. It's this idea of uh, constantly accomplishing more that is something that we crave. And uh, I find this idea of more absolutely fascinating because there is a mechanism in our brain um, where a certain network is activated when we're striving for more of something. Um, and, and that network, not to geek out too much, but I feel people might be receptive to this idea, um, that, that striving for more, it's this acquisition mentality, is reverse correlated with the network in our brain that's activated when we're savoring our lives, when we're appreciating the here and now, and just being present and enjoying uh, whatever it is that we happen to be doing. And so because these networks are are anti-correlated with one another, when one is activated, the other isn't and vice versa. So the more we strive for more uh, of whatever currencies that we're trying to optimize for in our lives, the less we actually enjoy what we're doing. And actually, the less present we become because we find it uh, much more difficult to focus on the here and now. And that's the ironic thing about this pursuit of productivity where there is a line whereby when we cross this line, we take the the pursuit of productivity too far and actually become a bit less productive because we're less focused and less present, less engaged with whatever it is that we want to be doing. Um, And not only productive, you know, setting productivity aside, but we experience less uh, meaning and death in our life because we aren't able to bring our full selves to whatever it is that we intend to be doing in the moment. And so it's this fascinating dichotomy where uh, we have an acquisition mentality and we have a savoring mentality. And these two ideas are are, uh, reversely correlated with one another. But the more we invest in kind of a balanced pursuit of productivity, ironically, we feel in this pursuit sometimes as though we're leaving accomplishment on the table. But the truth is that we're actually cultivating how productive we can be in the first place. Well, let's talk about how you can practically do this. If you're an organization, you're not getting the most out of burned out people, right? That is not where you want to be. So if you don't want to create that culture where people burn themselves out, what are the things you can do? And and actually, do organizations even care? Because you know what? You burn out some and you get a lot out of the others. Well, that that attitude, you know, when people have it, I I kind of roll my eyes <laughs> because but burnout when when one person burn, burns out, it's kind of a canary in the coal mine situation. Um, you know, over the course of of writing this book, I had the chance to to chat with Christina, Dr. Christina Maslach, who's probably the world's foremost expert on this subject of burnout, and she 
basically describes the phenomenon as something that none of us should ever have to experience. And what, what I would say to management who has that attitude is you're, you know, setting aside the mental health of your employees for a second, which is a rather large thing to set aside. But let's look at the numbers. Uh, when people are burnt out, they're not engaged and they're not productive. Uh, being unproductive is a core attribute of burnout. Uh, and so when you consider that, I mean, sh shake yourself if you still think that after, after thinking that, that uh, you know, burnout is okay. Burnout is a sign that your team is not productive uh, and nowhere near as productive as they should be. So those six levers, workload, control, uh, fairness, community, values, and reward. If you're in a management position, those you should see those as the six levers that you can apply pressure to, to overcome this phenomenon where your team is far less productive and engaged than they ought to be. What about if you're an individual who is maybe in a supportive organization, maybe not, but you want to make sure you don't get to that state? What are the, the things you should be thinking about? Yeah, so those six factors, you know, the research shows that this is where the predominance of our chronic stress comes from at work. And one big tactic that I'm an advocate for is checking how well you're doing on these over the course of time. And so you'll find that things fluctuate over the uh, over the course of the year in terms of how many projects you have on your plate, how much control you have. Some periods you may be going through a lot of travel. Some periods you may be experiencing more stress at home, which is making you more likely to burn out. But really getting a handle on how well you're doing over time with these six factors. So something that I like to do, I don't do this every week. I don't even do this every month, but I do it every I'd say quarter every few months or so is rank how well I'm doing on each of these factors out of 10. So maybe my workload is crazy high. And so I'm experiencing a lot of stress from that, maybe a nine out of 10 with stress from that. Maybe I feel really connected at the same time though with the people that I'm working alongside. So the stress from that factor is maybe a one out of 10. And over time though, you understand this this composite score of how well you're doing. And usually not all of these factors are out of whack for us. Uh, you know, in, in terms of my, my case, if I'm looking at my own uh, burnout in, in my past, often the workload was crazy high and, and indeed uh, lowering how much work we have on our plate by delegating, by eliminating, by shrinking on our, uh, that's one of the most common interventions when somebody is going through a period of burnout because that's such a, a valuable uh, lever to apply pressure to. Usually burnout is crazy or, or workload is crazy high for me, as well as a lack of control, uh, how much control I feel I have over my work. And so look at your factors, see what's, uh, see, you know, within the bounds of how much autonomy you have in your role, uh, how you shape work because this will ultimately make you more productive, not less productive, ironically, when you shrink these aspects. Uh, one of the things I found almost radical that you are advising is you're telling people to get off Twitter and use websites. Oh, that's a hard one. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and the thing is, though, social, you know, when you look at the elements that comprise our day, and you rank them by how meaningful and productive they end up being. Twitter ranks pretty low. <laughs> Social media ranks pretty low on, on this list of all these tasks. You know, some of us, we, we have no choice but to be on Twitter. But, you know, my, my wife, she's a, 
an economics professor and there's an, a hashtag called econ Twitter where people share journal articles with one another. Mm-hmm. You know, she stumbles it, it, into things. Um, but one kind of general heuristic that I like to use when it comes to balancing the digital and, and the uh, physical worlds that we occupy is that meaning is meant to be found in the physical world, whereas efficiency is meant to be found in the digital. And sometimes it's these social media websites, because we have this innate desire for novelty in our brain, you know, uh, we, we tend to be unable to resist them in the moment. And this leads us to overstimulate our mind in the moment. We, we even have this bias in our mind called the novelty bias. Uh, for every new novel thing we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine, which is uh, the the neurochemical that makes us feel as though pleasure is right around the corner. And so we check Twitter, we get a hit of dopamine. We uh, then check the news, we get another hit of dopamine. Then we go to email, which is almost just as novel as these factors, and we get another hit. And all this dopamine means we're flying at this high level of mental stimulation, which makes it difficult to come down and work on things that lead us to feel present, uh, that lead us to engagement and productivity. It becomes much harder to do work that we find boring when our mind is more stimulated. We don't want to do bookkeeping. We don't want to do a cat. We don't want to write. We don't want to create because in the moment we have that novelty bias that leads us to overstimulate our mind. But in my opinion, even though we're, we kind of have an uphill battle when it comes to a lot of these services, this is all the more reason to try to calm our mind because it's presence with the things that we actually want to get done that after we do them, we're satisfied to have done them. Uh, where, you know, we, we, mail, we, we may, you know, exhale and uh, ah, you know, after we take a sip of tea or coffee, but we never do that after checking social media. It's because it doesn't lead us to feel satisfied or happy with how we've spent our time. And I think that's a feeling we need to reclaim. Interesting. That's, as I, would, as I was saying, that would be a very difficult one uh, for some of us, but probably yeah. worth it. Yeah. Okay. So this may be a year where we're looking at a slowing economy, maybe recession, people being laid off or yeah. not getting the raises they want. Yeah. What's your final advice to people in this atmosphere where it's going to be hard to be calm? Yeah, it's going to be hard to be calm. It's going to be hard to be productive. Um, I would recenter the focus this year around intention. You know, we're perfectly productive when we accomplish the things that we set out to do in the first place. And, you know, we tend to productivity and all this stuff is doing more, 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 faster, faster, faster. But if I've learned one thing, looking through the lives and the routines of uh, the highest performers over the last decade or so, uh, it's that the most productive people are not the ones who do more, 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 faster, faster, faster. Uh, They're the ones who do the right things deliberately and with intention that uses more uh, of their mind. Uh, and especially, you know, as we see shifts this year in artificial intelligence and gener- generative uh, artificial intelligence, especially, we need to raise the level of work that we do out of the drudgery, if at all possible, and activate more of our mind to be present with what what, what we're trying to focus on in the moment. So bring it back to intention, bring it back to calm too. Calm saves us time. Um, where, you know, if you had to do complex work, if you had to write, say, a 1,000-word article 
five minutes before you went on stage in front of a thousand people, <laughs> you, you would not be able to focus on that article because that's the effect anxiety has on our cognitive performance. But calm works in the other direction. It expands how much uh, working memory we have to give to whatever it is that we're doing in the moment. It makes us more deliberate, less reactive. Uh, it makes us look for more opportunities because we uh, see fewer threats in our environment. We get less bogged down by the negative uh, things in our external environment, whether that be negative email or social media updates or the thoughts in our mind. I, I think calm is one of the best ingredients that we have to manage for being productive in this kind of mental and external environment over the course of this next year. So that's the ingredient that I'm personally doubling down on. Uh, and hopefully it raises the level of work that we all do. Thanks, Chris. A good thought to leave it on. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Chris Bailey is author of the book, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Chris and about the book, take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at at Relentless Eco. Now, if you did like this conversation about the future of work, please take a moment, leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That will really help people find us and that will keep these conversations going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production. 